Our next New Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up in a cloud took him out of their sight. When he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Every morning after I get dressed, I put my phone in my front left pocket and then my keys and my Listerine breath strips because sometimes I have to pray with people up close and I don't want to kill them with my coffee breath. My keys and my Listerine breath strips, they go in my front right pocket. My headphones go in that weird fifth pocket that goes above the right pocket. It comes standard on every pair of jeans, even though no one really knows why it's there. Side note, I got so curious about that after I wrote that sentence that I looked it up. It was put there in 1873 for pocket watches, so now you know. And then finally, my wallet goes in my back left pocket. Now, this means two things. First, it means that you can now all rob me confidently and efficiently if that's something you'd like to do. No? Good. Okay, moving on. Second, it means that I freak out just a little bit when I can't feel one of these objects because they go in the same place every single day. And these freakouts can get a little bit ridiculous sometimes. Like the other day, I was driving around and I couldn't feel my keys in my pocket and I started to get worried that I'd left them somewhere. <laughs> Some of you got it. For those of you who don't get it, I'll say it again. I was driving... And I couldn't feel my keys in my pocket, since, you know, the act of driving traditionally begins with removing one's keys from their pocket and putting them in the ignition. So, I seem to do things like this all the time. My personal favorite was when I was on the phone with somebody, and at one point in the conversation I said, Can you hang on a second? I can't seem to find my phone. <laughs> It was in my hand, pressed up against my face, and I was talking into it, but it wasn't in my front left pocket, so there was that mini freak out. I'm assuming I'm not the only person who does this, am I? No? Good. Thank you. We get used to things being in a certain place. 
We get used to things being in a certain place, and when they're not there, even if they're pressed up against our faces, it can be weirdly disorienting. In our New Testament lesson this morning, we have Jesus hanging out with his disciples, and after he gives some parting words, he ascends into heaven. And suddenly, the disciples find that there are these two guys in white robes who are standing there, and they say to the disciples, why are you guys standing there looking up towards heaven? And this, my friends, is kind of a weird question, isn't it? Because imagine you're having lunch with some of your friends, and suddenly one of them starts floating. And then eventually they disappear into the sky. Where are you going to be looking? Where are you going to be looking? Up to the sky, exactly. I'm a good United Methodist, and as such, I'm not allowed to gamble. But even I'm willing to bet that you won't be looking at your burger saying, I know that my friend just did a little beam me up move, but my goodness, this thing is just too delicious to turn away from. No, you're going to be looking up. So these two guys in white robes appear to the disciples and they say, why are you standing there looking toward heaven? And it seems just a little bit weird because where else would they be looking? But this would have been an even weirder question for people in the first century. Because these would have been people who believed in a tiered universe. And here's what I mean by that. They believed that the earth was flat. And it was covered with a dome, and this dome had lights on it, the sun and the moon and the stars. This dome also had trap doors in it that opened to let water down. This is where they believed rain came from. And above that dome, they believed there was a throne, and on that throne, that's where they believed God or the gods sat. So when I say that folks in the first century believed in a tiered universe, I mean that for them, God or the gods were up. The divine lived on a higher tier or a higher plane than human beings did. This is why ancient people built temples on hills or mountains. There was this belief that God is up. And this is also why I say that this question that the guys in the robes ask would have been even weirder for ancient people. Because their question to these people who are having a religious experience or a spiritual experience is, why are you looking up? Well, of course they'd be looking up if they were having a spiritual experience, because up is where God lives. Up is where the gods lived. Now, we can look at this idea and we can think to ourselves, oh, that's just so primitive. And in a way it is, because we don't believe in a flat earth anymore, unless you're Kanye West. But I'm glad like two people got it over there, thank you. But I think that we still have this lingering understanding that God is up. And I think this because of certain phrases that we use. So for example, some people may refer to God as the man upstairs, exactly. Or there are some examples of phrases that come from uh, come from the worship service, even phrases that I use. So when we talk about praying, we may talk about lifting up our prayers to God. Or when we talk about a meaningful or spiritual experience, we may talk about a mountaintop experience. And even if you don't think of God as being up, you may at very least think of God as being somewhere else. So again, in our prayers, we might say something like, Dear God, please be with so-and-so, which sort of implies that God isn't already with so-and-so. Now, I want to stop and be clear here for a minute. I'm not trying to embarrass you or shame you if you use these phrases. I think they're helpful phrases. 
I don't want anyone to banish them from your vocabulary, except maybe the man upstairs. I think we can get by just fine without that one. In some ways, these phrases are helpful, but nonetheless, these phrases do tell us something about what we may ever so subtly or even unintentionally believe about God and where God is. So, these two guys in white robes ask the disciples, why are you looking up toward heaven? Which sounds like a weird question for so many reasons, all of the reasons that we talked about. But I also think that rather than being a weird question, the question is also a revolutionary question. Because what these guys in the white robes are doing by asking this question is challenging the common assumption that God is up. They're challenging the assumption that God is up. And this may be a problem for us. Because we are beings that have the capacity to get disoriented when our phones are in our hands instead of our left pockets, or our keys are in the ignition instead of our right pockets. We get used to things being in their proper place, and when they're not in their proper place, it throws us off. So these guys in white robes are asking a challenging and potentially disrupting question, which is, what if God isn't up? What if God is somewhere else. And this is disorienting because if God isn't up, then where exactly are they suggesting God is? Well, let's take a look at some of the situations surrounding this challenge to the notion that God is up. The narrator tells us that Jesus told his disciples that they were supposed to stay in the city where they were and wait. We talked about this earlier, but do any of you like being told to wait? No, absolutely not. No one likes waiting. Waiting means that we're in between two places. Waiting means that we're looking for the next thing to happen, and we believe that that next thing is going to be absolutely crucial. And stay in the city where you are? We're not big fans of being told to stay put either, are we? But those are the instructions that come just before it's suggested that God isn't up, which implies that rather than being up there or out there, God is in the waiting. God is here. God is where we already are on this tier, even in our waiting. Here's another situation just before the idea that God is up is challenged. Jesus gathers his disciples together for one last time before his ascension. And when he does, just before he leaves, the disciples ask him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? We need to talk about this question for a moment. A lot of people attached the word Messiah to Jesus. And when they did throughout the Gospels, he always told people to keep quiet about that because that word had certain political connotations. It meant that there was this expectation that Jesus would lead an army to overthrow the Roman Empire that was occupying his people. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus keeps on telling people, look, if you want to call me Messiah, fine, but understand one very important thing. I'm not going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus probably said this until he was blue in the face. I'm not going to overthrow the Roman Empire. I'm not going to overthrow the Roman Empire. So when the disciples get together for one last time, the disciples say, Hey, Jesus, glad you're back. Crucifixion thing. Poof, that was rough. So now you're going to overthrow the Roman Empire, right? 
And I always say that if there's one specific person in history who invented the smash my head motion, it was Jesus, and it was at this very moment. He's told them over and over again that he's not going to do something. And the last thing he gets asked by his disciples before he leaves is, so you're going to do the thing now, right? Right? And this event coming just before the disciples are told that God isn't up implies that God is in the midst of our ignorance. God isn't only pre- uh, uh, present with the enlightened or super spiritual people. God is with the people who profoundly misunderstand God, too. And the story goes on. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we find relationships that are formed and then broken. We find arguments. We find people mourning the deaths of friends and family members. And this book with all of these different stories, and it begins with the idea that God is up being challenged. So where is God if God's not up? God is where you already are. God is in waiting. God is in misunderstanding. God is in relationships being formed and then broken and then people forgiving one another. God is in grief and endless debates. God isn't where we think God is. And we like things being in their proper place. And it's disorienting when they're not. But if we start to take seriously this idea that God isn't up there where we think God is, it's actually incredibly empowering. Because what it means is that God isn't what we experience when we attain some higher plane of existence. Or when we're enlightened. Or when we're finally separated from everything that seems to hold us back. God is what we experience here and now in the middle of misunderstanding and grief and failure and waiting. So, do you feel like you need to understand God perfectly before God finally accepts you into God's presence? Good news. That is absolutely not the case. God is in our misunderstandings of who God is. Why are you staring up into the heavens looking for enlightenment before God finally accepts you? God is here in our misunderstanding. Or maybe you're waiting for a chapter of your life to finally end so you can get to the next thing where you're convinced everything is going to be better and you're going to feel closer to God or closer to the divine. Why are you staring off there thinking that that's where God is? God is now. God is in the waiting. Or maybe you just have itchy feet where you are right now. Like, I remember when I was a teenager in upstate New York, everybody was talking about how they couldn't wait to go to the city or move to Los Angeles to find themselves. It's amazing how many of these people moved back after like a month because they were looking for something they already had. Why do we stare off to some other city? Why do we stare off to some other house, some other country, some other job, thinking that that's where God is? God is here. Or, here's a great hypothetical scenario. Maybe you're in a church or a denomination that's in flux with some decisions, and you're waiting for a solution so that we can finally move forward and get on with doing ministry. Perfectly hypothetical speaking, right? Why are we staring off into a possible future looking for God there? God is already here. So what distant thing, 
What distant situation, what distant scenario are you staring up to or staring off to thinking that that's where God is? Where are you staring off to thinking about how much better it would be if you were just over there? Why are you staring up when God is already at work here? Amen.